0: This is the Scott Bradley
1: Show Podcast. A couple things I want to get to, though, before we get going today. Uh, story out of Quebec. What what town was it in Quebec? It's a town near Montreal. Broussard. Oh, Broussard, of course. It's you know right on the outskirts of Montreal. Did you hear this story today? Ben, did you hear this story today? Oh, Ben's going to grab the phone. Uh, about council there, a Montreal area town, has decided to forbid all nudity... Now, that's a good thing on its face, I suppose, but in locker rooms of municipal pools. So if you go to change in the locker room, you are not allowed to really change in the locker room, or at least you must go to great lengths to make sure you and your private parts are covered up so that nobody can see anything. You go in the shower after swimming, you to keep your bathing suit on. You change from your bathing suit into your whatever else. I guess you got to wrap a towel around yourself and make sure that nothing is visible to anyone else in the change room. And I was reading this today and my initial reaction was, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, come on, it's a change room. It's a dressing room. Of course, you know, people are going to occasionally have parts that are exposed. You're changing. I mean, you don't have to be making a show of it. You don't have to be like that guy at the Buffalo Bills game on the weekend, sprinting the length of the field with everything hanging out. But but then, you know what came to mind? And, and again, Ben is a young man. Ben will not know this probably. He will not have experienced this. I think this was like a 1970s thing, probably before that. But I can think back to days when I used to belong to the Y in where I grew up. And there were guys a lot older, it was an older man thing, and some of you are going to know where I'm going with this, it was an older man thing, that the, the change room at the Y was their personal nudist colony, that they decided that as soon as that door closed and they were behind the privacy of the men's change room, it was time to shuck all the clothes and we're going to wander around and turn this thing into our own personal garden of Eden. No clothes. Pfft, no clothes. I'm a 75 year old man and there are teenagers walking around here. doesn't matter. It's the human body. It's the beauty of the human body. Well, I got to tell you, I wasn't, um, as a teenager who was there just to play basketball, have a quick shower and go home. I wasn't thinking it was the beauty of the human body. When I came across the 75-year-old human Sasquatch. But, you know, I'm I, after reading this story about this place in Quebec and initially thinking it was stupid, I'm now thinking, if it's still going... Now, I haven't been to a public pool in a long time. But if things are happening in the public dressing rooms like they were at the Y once upon a time, I, I can understand putting some sort of moratorium on the letting everything hang out. I don't think any kids need to be seeing that anymore. I, I... It took several years of intensive therapy to clear that out of my brain. I don't think kids today, you're a seven-year-old kid getting changed to go for a swim in the pool. You don't need to see some guy walking around, airing himself out, talking with his neighbor with his leg up on the bench right beside you as you're getting changed. There is no need for any of that. Keep your keep your clothes on. What do you think? Are you are you in agreement with me? or Are you like, you know what? No, 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 no. You got
0: to be able to change see i've been playing sports for a very long time and after a while i've just kind of accepted that as part of sport is hey you're gonna see a few guys in the change room that's I'm, and so and, and you
1: I'm, know what that you know you're you're correct and that part if if it's just a case of you go to your locker you drop the towel you pull on the underwear and away you go Ah, that, then it's over it's overkill for sure
0: now that being said like you like you mentioned before when you have you know Edward and his buddy walking around and
1: I've never understood why a bunch of guys and again, this seems to be an older guy thing, but why a bunch of guys feel that once they're in their private It's the men's change room, it's his sanctuary. Yeah, in their private sanctuary that they gotta like whip it all off and just air it all out. And Uh, I've never understood I've you know, maybe it's just me not being comfortable or something, but the idea of standing there just having a chat with my pal with neither of us wearing a stitch of clothes. I I don't need that in my life. I don't, I don't. I don't need that kind of visual intimacy with any of my friends. I, I, I'm sure you look great with your clothes off.
0: I don't need to be the judge of that. My question is what do they do when they're at home? Is this the same situation? Is it just... You know, one no, guy and I'm, another, are, are they calling, or is that their sanctuary as well? Do
1: you think when they go home, <laughs> they just drop drawer and they're walking around the house, Starkers with their wife and their kids in the house? I don't know. I mean, they do no it when way. I'm around
0: in the change room. Why don't they do it at home? Do uh, it. Keep it out of my area. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I'm with you on this. I'm I, I thought
1: it was real overkill until I started having those flashbacks to the why and then I realized no if if that's what we're talking about, if this is what the complaints are that and I'll tell you another one. Years ago, and this was from the other side of the coin, years ago we were camping somewhere and they had like communal shower bathroom things, so you pitch your tent and then you go at night to get cleaned up and my wife went into the women's bathroom and promptly left Somewhat horrified that a number of women had decided that they were going to do similar things. It was uh, it was a gar- there was their particular little sanctuary and garden and nudist colony in there. And yeah, you know what? There's there's maybe it's just times are changing. Maybe that's it. Maybe we're far enough away from Woodstock now and the the whole nudist industry that if you really want to go to a nudist colony, they exist for you. A public bathroom is probably not designed. For this level of exposure, especially with kids, I guess. Anyway, I don't know what you think about it. You can send me a note, Radley at nine hundred chml.com. I just thought it was at first it was over overdone, but now as I'm thinking about it, it's like, you know what? Nope. If I'm if I when I was when I had young kids, when my kids were really young and we would go to the pool for swimming lessons, I now we didn't see any then, times apparently had changed, but I don't really maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a Quebec thing. I don't know. We don't, because it wasn't around here. I don't want to walk in to get my kid changed for swimming and all of a sudden there's two or three older guys sitting there just like reading the newspaper wearing nothing. You're right. That's for home. If you want to, if you, if you feel as though somehow you absorb the news better or you relax better wearing nothing, that's what your house is for. I, I'm not sure a public space is perfectly designed for that. Oh, well. Uh, one other thing, really quickly, before we get rolling tonight. There is a uh, totally, well, yeah, totally unrelated, I think. I mean, you probably are naked for this, too. We're, this is not supposed to be a theme tonight, but there is, um, you've heard of cryogenics, right? Luke or Ben, you know what? Uh, when you die, they're going to freeze you, and then, well, I mean, Walt Disney and Ted Williams, you, you die, they put you into some, like, vat of super chilled stuff, and you get turned into a human popsicle, and then once they figure out. What it was, they, once they have a, a, a cure for whatever it was that killed you, they're going to do a Han Solo or Austin Powers thing and thaw you out and then bring you back to life and see no man
0: and you'll come back and then they'll heal you and you'll live forever, right? You know all about this. The day I come back from cryogenics and I have that one scene from Austin Powers where you just hear, evacuation complete. <laughs> I, I, my life is complete at that point. You, you can kill me off after I've lived for however many years in cryogenics. But here's the thing now,
1: this Russian company that does cryogenics has, has, is turning things around a bit. They say, wait a second, if we actually let you die before cryogenicing you, a lot of the cells in your brain, because of lack of oxygen and everything, you're going to be damaging your brain. And bringing you back then is going to be much more difficult. And if you come back, you may not be the same person you were that you want to be. So here's their good idea now. This Russian company cryo it's called, wants to freeze you before you die. They want to cryogenic you while you're still alive. But this is where I don't understand this, because if the whole idea is that cryogenics is to freeze you after death so they can find a cure for what killed you and then cure you when they bring you back, well, this is saying the cryogenic is actually going to be the thing that kills you and so the cure is just to thaw you out. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But there are people apparently interested now in exploring this. It's in Switzerland where euthanasia is legal. Uh, people are actually exploring whether they might want to do this. Let me get frozen while I'm alive. That I don't even like going, I don't even like being chilly in my house. Let alone while I'm alive being dunked into a giant tank of liquid nitrogen or something. It sounds too chilly for me. I don't know. Way too chilly. Uh, it's a, in the procedure, the body is cooled in an ice bath to gradually reduce its temperature bit by bit. Experts then drain the blood and replace it with an antifreeze fluid to stop harmful ice crystals from forming in the body. This sounds delightful while you're alive, doesn't it? Just hook me up to something and fill me with antifreeze while I'm sitting in an ice tub. I'm going to look like I've got glow sticks flowing through my veins. <laughs> what a crazy world we live in. But you know what you can do? You could actually sit in this naked. You could pretend it's a municipal bathroom, a change room, and just sit there, read your newspaper in the cryogenic tank while they're filling you with antifreeze. And years later, when you come back, maybe we have advanced far enough as a society that it's
0: okay again to wander the change rooms of public pools naked and be that guy. So when they're unfreezing you, does Free Willy come to mind? Yeah, well, it would, it would, be, that would be one of the things. I'm just wondering how that's gonna go. Where they're like, well, we got Willie over in you know aisle two, and then one guy makes an old joke, and everyone starts laughing, and no one's mature ever again.
1: The company uh, says they already have 50 human bodies or heads. We don't even have time. But this is another one. There are some people that
0: only get their heads cryogenically frozen. Walt Disney is one of them. I I want to. Guarantee that, I hope at least. So what do you do when they bring you back and you're just a head? It's like the, it's like a Futurama, the cartoon where it's just heads with arms coming from the sides of canisters. It's, it's like a the, library. Yeah, it's the
1: singing ghosts in the um, Disney's haunted mansion, the four <laughs> heads that are just, we, 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 we live in a crazy, crazy world that people actually think that they would, uh, that they would want to do this. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Oh, and but just for, for, by the way, they have a lovely picture with this story. They do put some flowers in the water with you so you have a proper burial when before they freeze it, just so you know. It's not like... They're not animals. They're not animals. We're going to put some some flowers in there with you. Um, by the way, it's uh, $36,000 US right now to freeze a body and 12000 to freeze a head. So if it's a discount thing you're looking for, just have your head frozen. How do you remove someone's head without killing them? You know, you're asking questions that I'm sure they have great answers for. I'm just... At least a brochure would suggest so. <laughs> You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. A new study that was done by Ipsos, commissioned by the Children's Mental Health Ontario, says almost half of young people in this province miss at least some school because of anxiety. 46% is the actual exact number. But parents are missing work. Kids are missing school. Kids are falling behind. This is a huge problematic issue. It is a massive problematic issue. When you're talking about any kind of condition or problem that is affecting nearly one in two young people in this province... It is a big, big deal. Now, there are other things in the study, and we'll get to a number of them. But really, for me, that is the one that leaps off the page. Uh, joining me to talk about this, Kim Moran is the CEO of the Children's Mental Health Ontario that is behind this study. Uh, Kim, thanks for doing this tonight. Well, thank you. Uh, there's a lot of things, as I was reading through this study and some of the stories about it, there's a lot of things that come to mind. But, uh, Kim, honestly, the first and the, the, the pressing thing that really I can't help but think of as I look at this is what are we doing to our kids, or what is going on that 50%, almost one in two of them, are dealing with anxiety? Something, we're doing, something has gone terribly askew, if that's the case.
2: Well, you know, I think that, um, that we're still catching up with all the research to exactly know what's going on with that. Um, I think that we can all point to having a different world that, we, that our kids live in than we grew up in. Um, and, and we're not sure yet exactly what's causing the rates of anxiety to rise like this. The, the researchers right now don't see a change in prevalence. The only thing we can see, and we do have some research on, is a decrease in stigma. So we know that kids now are more open to talking about mental illness. We know that their parents are as well. And so what we see is a huge increase in demand for mental health treatment services. So that is the real crisis that we're seeing now, that we have been talking about for a number of years now, to say that when kids reach out for services, uh, they're just not there. Kids are often waiting, sometimes up to 18 months or two years, for help.
1: And I want to get to that, because that's obviously a really important part of this, part of the solution. But just to go back for one second, because I'm thinking back to when I was a teenager, when I was growing up, when I was in high school. And... Maybe someone will tell me today that fifty percent of the people that I grew up with were dealing with anxiety and these kind of things. But I, I, never saw any kind of evidence that the numbers were nearly that high. And again, I just, I, I'm, I'm struggling to try and figure out what got us here. That. Is it, is it an environment? I mean, what, what does the research say? What do the people? What are the leading thoughts on why? Is it just that kids are saying now that they have these problems? Because it seems to me it's, it's just much more prevalent than it ever was.
2: I think that you're right, and I think that it is more prevalent, but certainly the research hasn't caught up with that yet. As you know, it takes often years for new research to come out about this. So I think that we're going to be struggling with what the reasons are for a while yet, And unfortunately, we're going to have to deal with the situation as it is Mm. uh, until we can sort of catch up with that research. Um, So unfortunately, I can't give you those answers at this time.
1: You know, we we talk a lot, not just here, but I mean, in conversation in society, we talk a lot about how our kids are bubble-wrapped or how our kids are this or kids are that. And I just, I I look at it and I think, you know, I'm willing to take some of the blame. I've got kids. uh, I'm an adult. We're all adults. I just look and I think, man, we have we must have done something to help create an environment where our kids are feeling this kind of anxiety about life or uh, that would be my guess. Maybe I'm way off, but it just seems all the things that we've done to tell our kids, you know, you're always, you know, you can do anything and then sometimes it doesn't happen. Well, I may not be living up to those things. There's so many things that we've done that I just look at and I go, man, I don't know. I, I'm, and again, maybe I'm way off, but I, I take the blame. I, I, my generation, I think has to take some of the blame for this.
2: Well, I think that I think that you're quite right, and I certainly I have a 17 year old and a 21 year old, and so I totally understand what you're thinking, and I certainly am reexamining sort of how how what what my part in this is as well. But I think that you know that we really have to be thoughtful about. There's always going to be you know uh, some work and change that we have to do with our parenting skills, and and I think that as the research gets brought out into the public eye, we'll learn more about that. I think that where we've got the problem now is, is how do we deal with what do yes. we have you know in front of us?
1: Well, for sure, and and you've talked about the fact that it's not easily accessible, at least there's not the, the, the availability of resources that we need, and that is you know, with what we've got in front of us, as you say, however this situation has been created, we now have to deal with it. So if we don't have the resources, what do we do?
2: Well, I think that what we've developed at Children's Mental Health Ontario is a plan. Um, And what we we are suggesting is that what kids need, and when you look at the research, this is is supported by that, is the first thing they need is access to really high-quality, evidence-based psychotherapy. And some people might not know what that means, but they probably know what cognitive behavioral therapy is, or CBT. And really, that's really helping kids and it works for adults as well, really sort of change your thinking about anxiety. And it's proven to be extraordinarily successful. The best thing is, is that it's really easy to implement. There's community child and youth mental health centers all over Ontario in every community. And they are set up and ready to do this work. What they lack is funding. Um, The funding actually has been cut uh, in half over the last 25 years. For some reason, it's just been... Ignored or orphaned by the government and and we're raising the alarm now to say that you know there this is a crisis and this has to be dealt with.
1: what age are we talking about by the way like, how young are we talking about that are that is involved in this one and two or the, the, the you know the huge numbers?
2: Well, I can tell you that it it actually spans a pretty large spectrum so even as young as infants. So that usually takes some explanation. So when you have babies born to, say, very young parents or parents who struggle themselves with mental illness, those babies have a huge high risk of having a mental illness. Uh, So I would say it starts there. But we're seeing evidence of anxiety when kids go to, say, junior kindergarten or senior kindergarten. Teachers can identify at that point kids who are struggling and who can't, um, uh, who have different problems than, say, their peers do. Then we start seeing another group of kids starting when they're sort of 10, 11, 12, where you start to see early signs of anxiety. Certainly my daughter uh, fell in that. Uh, my daughter was 11 when it was clear that there was a really significant issue, and she stopped going to school. Um, she was so ill at that point, it came on very suddenly, and she went from sad to depressed to attempting suicide in two and a half months
1: which is clearly and that's a that's a tragic story and it's clearly the I would think the extreme end of that uh, when we talk about these numbers though are all the kids are are the majority of the kids when we're putting them in these groups that have dealt with it are they all that severe or are these off are, are some of the kids in the that are falling into the anxious category much 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 more minor where they have occasional anxiety.
2: Absolutely, you're completely right. My daughter's case was certainly, you know, a small percentage of kids would have uh, issues as, as, as severe as that, and thank goodness for that. Uh, sure. Most kids, uh, um, probably about 50% of the number we're looking at, uh, would, would have sort of a mild to moderate anxiety issue. And what we found is uh, that for those kids, we have open walk-in clinics around the province for mental health. Uh, issues. And for them, one to three sessions of really high quality treatment usually is something that will turn around these problems and give them the tools that they need and their parents the tools to support them. It's the other 50% that we're finding who are not getting the services they need. They're the kids who have the more severe mental health issues, like my daughter. And they're the ones where we see these really significant wait times. And of course, those are the ones we really need to get to because they're in the most severe have the most severe problems uh, even more so those are the kids that end up in hospital in crisis um, that certainly will happen to my daughter because she didn't get the help she needed when she needed it we also have research to show that there's been a 63 percent increase in hospitalization rates for kids with mental health issues and we really draw a parallel between very long wait times for treatment in the community and this huge increase in hospitalizations so the group of kids that we're really targeting and we really think need to be targeted, those kids who have more serious issues.
1: What's is, what's causing, do we know what's causing the anxiety? What's what's causing it to manifest? I mean, are, are kids saying it's school? Are kids saying it's life? Has that study been done? Is that, has that been asked? Where does this manifest itself?
2: So, you know, I think that in, in um, if you look at the literature, the actual rates of people with quite severe anxiety disorders is fairly stable over time. And that would be the same for kids. We see that kids, when they start showing signs of anxiety, it's usually sort of in the 10, 12, 13 age, and then it just grows as they get, uh, they get a bit older. But we don't have the research to say, why are we seeing so many, so many more kids right now showing signs of anxiety? We're just waiting for that research.
1: But is that not... A huge. It seems to me that should be one of the things we should be trying to find out quickly, because if there is something that we can identify as a cause, then we could presumably be able to remove that or change it.
2: Absolutely. We've been calling on our researchers and scientists to, to really look into that question, and I think that there's quite a few scientists that are actually looking for funding and grants in order to really get into that question.
1: Yeah, because I go back to where where we started this, and I I I just think you know one example on it. Someone was when I was talking at uh, this afternoon with someone that we were going to be discussing this, they brought up the idea. They said, you know what. They really think they go, we don't allow kids in school now to be failed or to be held back. So suddenly you can't do the work. You're not as good at math, whatever else, but you have to continue on. And then it's more and more stressful and the anxiety that you can't do what your friends are doing. You can't do the work. Now, that may be one very small example, but there there seem to be areas where logically anyway, there would be spots where you could say there are things that we probably could do. Not for every kid, certainly. Your daughter, I, I say, is a um, an extreme example of this. But for those, it's more moderate. It seems that there are things we could probably do if we were setting our minds to it that would help some.
2: You know, there's a really good program that's being rolled out through Ontario schools that is really about um, uh, mental wellness, about teaching kids about emotions and teaching kids what's an okay emotion, and how to manage them themselves. And I think those are the kind of programs that are really going to help us as we go down the road. Um, You know, I think that that kind of um, sort of population-based strategy where we're talking to all kids, not just a few kids, is really where we're going to see a big change probably in further generations. And once we get through this crisis, I'm hoping with programs like that, that we're going to see a decline in this 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 number.
1: But if we have lost the funding that you are describing and if we have this increase now of 63 or 67% of kids in emergency room visits, what is your reason for them thinking this is suddenly going to wane? Why would we not expect that it will continue to climb?
2: Well, I think that is that I'm trying to be positive and hopeful. <laughs> well, that's a,
1: that's a good thing. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure.
2: Yeah. In in this, and you know, you know, we don't really know. I mean, I'm sure that once we get more research, in, we'll have a better idea of it. But certainly, you know, when I look at some of the research that's been done about um, about what they call mental health promotion in schools, uh, you know, there's 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 really good signs that that can be helpful in the future. But I think that. The other thing we have to deal with right now is today. And we have to make sure that the kids who are experiencing these high levels of anxiety can get the mental health treatment they need within 30 days. And we have to make sure that our our government understands that and really gets at, at reducing these wait times to less than 30 days.
1: Just before I let you go, if you do get help, if you are someone who is with anxiety, one of these kids who is suffering with it, regardless of where you are on the scale, can you get rid of it? Or is it something you are going to be, once you've had it, is it now sort of burned into who you are and you're going to be dealing with this forever?
2: You know what? Most kids recover from it. Most kids get periodic bouts of anxiety, you know, like adults, um, and it's manageable. There's only a small percentage of kids that will actually have to deal with it for the rest of their life. so There's a lot of hope there. But you need to get that kind of evidence-based, high-quality treatment you know, when it's a mild issue, and not wait until you're in hospital.
1: Kim Moran, CEO of the Children's Mental Health Ontario. Uh, you can read about this online. There's a number of stories that have been written just today in various newspapers and online about this. It is, And I'm sure the study is online as well. People can go and look up the information. It's, it's important. It's really interesting. Uh, Kim, thanks for doing this tonight. really appreciate your time.
2: Well, I appreciate your time, too. Thank you.
1: It's really interesting that for all the work that they're doing and I applaud, I mean, obviously, you know, these numbers are enormous and we don't, according to Kim, we don't yet have the science that would explain why this is happening to the point it is. And so, you know, I'm sure that I'm jumping the gun on this one. I'm sure that I'm whatever, but boy, I, I look at what we do to our kids sometimes And it seems to me we're setting some, not all. There are kids clearly who, you know, like her daughter, as she described, who it's very, very serious. But for some kids, it just seems like we're doing things that are setting them up to have anxiety. You know, we've talked about this here and you've talked about it with your friends. I'm sure the whole idea that. You know, every kid gets a trophy. Well, you know, if if then later on in life, if maybe not everybody is equal, not everybody succeeds at the same level. Well, now I'm falling behind. Now, what do I do? My friend is doing better than me. You don't think that can cause some anxiety? You don't think when we tell our kids over and over, you're perfect. Everything you do is perfect. And then things aren't perfect. You don't think that can cause anxiety? Like, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking... There are many cases where clearly this would not be falling. There, there are medical, psychological situations that are beyond simple causation by actions of adults. But there are others, boy, that you look at and you say, if we're talking about one in two kids are dealing with anxiety and missing school as a result, we've got to be having some impact on that. As adults, we have to be creating this in our kids. Again, you're not allowed In school to fail now. So if you fall way behind in math in grade three, grade four, grade five, by the time you get to grade eight or grade nine, and now you don't have a clue what's going on and you're miserable and you're struggling and you're being told you got to get great marks to start getting ready for university. You don't think that that is going to cause some kind of anxiety that we didn't fix a problem. We basically pushed you. Because we didn't want to hurt your feelings. And now what's happening? Well, I there is maybe a scientist, a psychologist out there who tells me that's not the way it works. But boy, oh boy, it uh, seems to me that some of these cases anyway, some of these cases, not all, I'm not lumping them all in. But some of these cases could be helped if maybe we didn't do some of the things to our kids under the guise of trying to make them happy and trying to prop them up, maybe a little honesty, maybe a little correction, maybe a little some other things would save some of the kids from down the road having to deal with this stuff. I don't know. That seems to me, though, that it makes sense. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show,
0: weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML.
1: We have talked on this show more than a few times, more than a few times, about freedom of speech and freedom of thought on university campuses. They are supposed to be the place where you go and you have the most freedom to express different points of view, to explore what you believe, to be challenged on certain thoughts, to challenge others on what they believe. We know that's not always the case, though. Uh, This is, this has become... A real ongoing issue to the point now where McMaster and I applaud them for doing this. Now, we'll wait and see what they come up with in their final draft. But I applaud them that they are beginning. Patrick Dean, the president, is beginning to try to build an anti-disruption policy so that people who may come onto campus as a guest speaker or as a professor who have views that fall afoul of the politically correct don't get yelled down, don't get chased off campus, don't have air horns blown He's trying, it sounds like, to come up with some kind of idea that would allow people with views that are different. didn't say wrong. I said views that are different from the general population that they would still be allowed to speak. That's what university is supposed to be about. That someone who just because their thoughts fall outside the accepted parameters of the academics or the glitterati on campus should not mean you can't ever hear them. Well, if you think all this stuff is, you know, we're talking about it, but it's all just theoretical. It doesn't really happen. There's the odd case here and there, but this isn't really a thing. It's a theory. It's ethereal. It's not really practical. Well, let me introduce you to my next guest. Uh, She finds herself today a foul of the thought police because of something she did on campus. Now, not something that she, not a point of view she espoused, just something that she exposed to some students. You would think this is part of the learning process. Apparently not. Apparently not. And what you will find, I think, what I expect to hear is that when you do fall into the crosshairs of those who would disagree with you, it is not necessarily a pleasant or a fun place to be. Lindsay, Sep- Lindsay Shepard is a graduate student and a teaching assistant at Wilfrid Laurier University. She joins me now. Lindsay, thanks for doing this tonight. Yeah, no problem. Uh, Before we get into all this, just uh, for some background for people who don't know your story, take a minute or so and explain how you became part of a story, how you became part of a story about free speech on university campus.
3: Yeah, of course. So um, I'm a graduate student at Wilfrid Laurier University. And um, as a grad student, you also have a TA ship, which means you're a teaching assistant. So I have two classes of 24 students. And um, on November 1st, so two weeks ago, um, we were doing a mini lesson on grammar. And so I wanted to contextualize for my students how grammar affects their everyday lives. And the case I used to talk about this was um, genderless pronouns. And so we had a discussion in the class about how English has gendered pronouns. So we say he and she, for example. Um, similar with other languages like French and Spanish. However, the Persian language, for example, no gendered pronouns. So it's, it's the same for he and she. So it was a discussion about language. And I've brought up Peterson's arguments, as well as people who didn't agree with Peterson, because um, it, it was a video of a debate which had arguments and counter-arguments.
1: Um, now, just to, sorry, just to interrupt for one second, Jordan Peterson, yeah. for those who don't know, Jordan Peterson is a University of Toronto professor who has taken issue and challenged the idea that everybody should have to use whatever pronoun a person deems that they wish to be called. He says there is he and there is she and there may be one other one for someone who is something else, but not the 31 pronouns or whatever that are out there. So anyway, continue on from there.
3: Yeah, and um, so... One thing that was in the, the clip that I showed, from, which was taken from the agenda with Steve Bacon. Um it was talking about using the word say in the singular to refer to, um, you know, like a gender non-binary or trans person. Um, and so we were kind of talking about the grammar of that, you know, um, and how language evolves. And so, um, however, I, even though I thought it was like a nice, friendly debate and discussion in the class. Uh, it turns out that at least one person had a serious problem uh, with being exposed to an idea that they didn't like.
1: You didn't and You didn't bring this up specifically to create controversy?
3: No, 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 no. Um, I mean, uh, it was about grammar. So, I, I mean, I talked about the usual grammar things like fragment sentences and um, contractions and stuff. So I just wanted to make it more interesting to them. I wanted to engage them. And actually really have a profound look at language, because sometimes we don't realize how much language is a part of our lives. So I wanted to make that point.
1: I will say right off the top that my high school grammar teacher, who uh, was not really, uh, she didn't love me, uh, she would be thrilled to know that grammar could lead to a controversy. But nonetheless, <laughs> that is, uh, but yeah, so you, you play this video. It's a five-minute video of him talking about pronouns. Uh, hardly, in my mind, the outrageous commentary, you know, it, it wasn't someone on there, uh, you know, saying that we should be bringing back the Nazis or whatever else. I mean, it was a pretty, seemingly pretty benign thing. Somebody complains, what happens?
3: Um, yeah, so somebody complains, and, you know, keep in mind, I'm not permitted to see the complaints, so I don't know specifically what their problem was, um, and I'm not going to be allowed to see it, I also don't know how many people complained, they won't even tell me that. I don't know if it was one single person. I don't know if it was all of the students, right? Um, So I found myself in a meeting last week, and it was with um, the professor of the course, um, the program director of my master's program, and someone who's the, the acting manager of the Gendered Violence and, I think, Sexual Assault Prevention? Um, and they, they basically told me that by virtue of presenting Peterson's argument in a classroom, um, even though, you know, in the video, he is challenged. So it's not like I showed a, a monologue of Jordan Peterson. I mean, these were people who were challenging him, too. Um, just, just by virtue of that, I, I did something very wrong. And, but what did um, they
1: say was wrong? What was the thing that you had done wrong?
3: I'm, I committed transphobia. Specifically, I created an unsafe learning environment, a toxic climate, um, and you know this, the quote that went viral that, that my professor said is it's like I neutrally played a speech by Hitler.
1: Okay, so um, well, let's use that example for a second. If you do, do they at Wilfrid Laurier University in uh, in history courses? not teach about Hitler or Mussolini or Stalin or Che Guevara or Castro or any of the other people that have ever done horrible things?
3: I would assume that they do.
1: <laughs> and, and does that mean that when they teach about Hitler, they never would either use any of his words or show any of his speeches or anything like that? I would assume they have to.
3: Yeah, I, I'd assume so.
1: So what's the difference here if you have someone, where I don't think they would argue that those history professors are vouching for Hitler or trying, as I said before, to recreate the Nazi party. So what's the difference if you have someone, whether you agree or disagree with his point, what's wrong with hearing his point?
3: Yeah, um, that's exactly my question. Um, and, you know, the thing is, I, I didn't even endorse a viewpoint. Um, but I mean, that's what they said was the problem. They said it would have actually been okay for me to show the Peterson video if I had prefaced it by saying this guy is a problem. He's problematic. And, you know, basically, if I had condemned him before showing the video, it would have been okay. But because I'd, I wanted students to make up their own minds, that was not okay.
1: But there are people inside and outside of academia who actually agree with the general idea of what Jordan Peterson is saying. So, right. so how do you then, are, are they not permitted to then have that point of view? I guess not.
3: Um, well, yeah. I mean, the, at the meeting, they were basically telling me that uh, showing stuff like this is not part of the agenda of the course, the department, the university.
1: So who then, if if it's about choosing what is acceptable, who is the group who decides what is acceptable?
3: I have no idea. Um, Yeah.
1: It makes for an interesting problem. No, it makes for an interesting problem. If they're determining, if someone is saying on university campuses that you can only use acceptable language or acceptable discussions, who... Is there something sent out at the start of the year that says what's acceptable? And if there's not, who determines on the fly what we are willing to accept or not? I mean, it makes me wonder what else might not be allowed to be said in a classroom or on a campus.
3: Yeah, I mean, um, I think like we're definitely entering really dangerous territory now um, because, you know, students are being taught that even if they feel the slightest bit offended by something, uh, they no longer need to listen to it or engage with it. And, like, moreover, they can complain to university higher-ups who will make sure that people like me sanitize content so that no one else gets to hear those ideas either. Um, so, like, what's at stake here is, is young people's ability to even listen to other people's ideas.
1: Well, and, and also, I mean, it, it certainly raises issues about... Uh, I, I always thought that part of university was being challenged and learning, at university, learning the ability... To be challenged so that when you head out into the real world and someone gives you a problem, you can use your critical thinking and your ability to analyze things to come up with a solution to that. And if what we are saying now is anything that you would disagree with that you could deem as offensive, you shouldn't ever hear, that seems to be taking most of the whatever it is you've paid to go to university for out of the curriculum. The, the, the problem-solving ability and the ability to think through a, an issue, if that's gone, why are you going to university? I can read yeah. books at home.
3: Yeah, um, it, it is It is like a very weird trend because, you know, I mean, these are students who are obviously intelligent enough and hardworking enough to get into university. So it's it's interesting to me that they then want to be treated like an infant, basically. they. I mean, even though they're 18 years old, um, they it's like they want to be protected, sheltered, insulated. they want to be infantilized. They don't want the reality. So' Lindsay, At least I'm, I'm talking about the person who complains.
1: Sure, of course. And, and and you know, for all we know, you said there was 24 people in the class, I think uh, it, it may only be one and the other 23 are now being lumped in and they're not that and and that that may well be the case. But what if I attend a university now because I've been off university campus now for some time? What if I attend university now and I hold a deeply, held philosophical or religious or some kind of view i don't act violently i'm not doing it in a mean-spirited way but what if i if i hold a view that conflicts with the accepted viewpoint of the professors what then
3: i think you would just have to keep it to yourself Um, i mean i i find myself in that situation sometimes in my graduate classes i just I just have to hold back and not say anything because um, I'm afraid of, of the grades I'm going to get by my professors even. Right?
1: All right, so let me use an example here. Let me say that uh, in a in a class for something, I mean, pick whatever it would be, uh, that I am a student who is, let's find a controversial topic. Um, I'm a student who is deeply pro-life and I'm not holding up pictures of chopped up babies and I'm not shooting doctors. I just hold those views. And I'm asked by my professor to write on a topic that is controversial, make an argument, make my case, and I will be graded on how well I write it and how well I make my case. Do you think that you could get a fair grade on most university campuses that you know of if you were to go against the accepted politically correct view?
3: You know, I I think it's getting to the point where it's just a professor by professor basis. So I mean, you might be lucky to get someone who's reasonable. And, you know, ideally, and even, you know, I mean, every professor, sh- professor should be rational and, and reasonable about students' different views. But I, I, my fear is, and other people's fear is, that we might be in a time now where, yeah, I mean, you will be punished if you don't have um, the correct ideas, what they deem to be the correct ideas.
1: What kind of feedback... Now, you've there's been a lot written about you. You've been written up in the Globe and in the National Post and other places, but what kind of feedback have you received from people on campus? Has it been split, or has it been one side or the other? Where, which way has it gone?
3: Um, so I've, I've only been supported. So um, I've gotten many emails and um, LinkedIn messages, and they've all been in support of me, which is really great.
1: Saying what? Um, saying what, generally?
3: Saying that... This is a real problem, free speech on on campus. And you know universities should be places that we talk about ideas because if not universities, then then where? Um, and you know, they they're so happy that I'm standing up for it, uh, keep fighting, we support you, um, that kind of stuff. And I've received not one single uh, message that has been against what I've done because the thing is, actually, I don't think anyone could argue that I did anything wrong because all I did was present an argument. Well, some people did.
1: Some people thought you did something wrong because that panel sure sounded like they did not go easy on you.
3: Yeah, but, um, I mean, they're not even responding to media or anything. So I, at this point, I don't know um, if they can even really defend what they did at this point.
1: What becomes of you and your position at the university out of this, though? Because you you have done media. You're doing it right now. Uh, you are taking a I think a very practical, a very reasonable view on this. Uh, what happens to you? do you do you expect that the folks at the university, the folks who are on this committee are thrilled that you're doing this and bringing this to light? <laughs>
3: um, no I, I I think they're probably embarrassed. Um, I mean, I know the professor for the course has shut down his Twitter and Facebook, I assume because he's been getting. Uh, tons of messages against what he's done. Uh, I mean, I've been cc'd in emails to him um, saying, like, shame on you and stuff.
1: Who are these, by the way, who are these coming from? Are they mostly students, or are they mostly people who are just off in the public, or can you tell?
3: Um, from what I can tell, it's it's the general public. Um, it's actually not a lot of students, some, um, but, you know, it, it should be more, really. I I don't know. Maybe they don't read the news anymore.
1: Well. Let's hope, let's hope, that's a second problem if we get to there. Let's hope that's not, but I can't imagine that. So, I mean, you you strike me as someone who is brave enough to stand up and actually, as I say, go public with this and be a face for this, but I can't imagine that doing the whole thing has been very fun. And, I, and when I hear about going to a panel and having to sit in front of these people and defend your position and reading the pieces, it sounds like you defended yourself very well, but... Not everybody, I don't think, is going to want to, A, go through that, or B, would be confident enough to do that. So what does this do for someone else who may not be quite as self-assured as you, but who would have been in your position?
3: Um, well, I hope that, you know, more people who, who feel stifled will speak to it. And because I think, you know, I mean, there's been a lot of comments on, on my story um, in various news outlets saying, I don't believe this. You know, they, they simply don't believe that it really happened. And so I, because it is so crazy.
1: Was it intimidating? So, was it, in, honestly, was it for you? You're, you're 22, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, congratulations to you, because when I was 22, <laughs> I would have cowered like a baby in the corner, to be very honest, at something like this. Like, it would have been terrifying. But was it intimidating for you to sit down with them and not know what they were going to do?
3: Um, yes. I mean, I cried. I cried during the meeting. Uh, but I, I can still articulate my thoughts while I'm, while I'm bawling. Um, (laughs) um, yeah,
1: it, but there's a lot of, I mean, they, no, there's a lot of people who would be your age, teachers, assistants, and graduate students. uh, I'm guessing who would not have been able though, or willing to stand up and fight it like you did.
3: Yeah. Um, and they were being very vague about my future. And I, um, you know, if I hadn't agreed to the conditions that they put on me, They very well may have taken away my job.
1: What were the conditions?
3: Um, So the conditions are that I have to submit my lesson plans in advance. Um, The prof is going to sit in to my tutorial tomorrow night. Um, He may drop in on my future tutorials. And keep in mind, this is not common practice. Like, he, he doesn't usually do this. So this is kind of like an extra step in, like, surveillance and micromanagement. Um, but the most significant is that I'm now not allowed to engage in any more controversy. So I, I have to monitor myself. Uh, I, I basically have to be afraid that anything I say, the student could complain about and, and escalate this situation.
1: Just before I let you go, because I've taken too much of your time, we got to go to a break here. But w- what I don't understand about this whole thing is what the folks who would oversee this. What are they afraid of? What would be what? What's the fear? of you showing a five-minute rather balanced video of a guy being giving his comments but also answering questions for people challenging him, what are they afraid that kids are going to see or learn or hear?
3: Um, I think they're afraid of, of hurting people's feelings. Um, I don't know. I mean, hopefully they'll speak to the media. I mean, so far they've been kind of hiding out, but hopefully they will um, state what they were afraid of and, and what, what was their motivation
0: for this? I just,
1: as I say, congratulations to you, because I think it's a, um, it's a, it is a courageous thing to do, especially, I'm not making light of your age, but for a 22 year old, it is, uh, to stand up to the, the folks, you know, it, it is a brave thing to do. And I, I commend you for doing it because I think you're on the side of the angels here. I think you're absolutely doing the right thing. And, um, I just I just don't understand. I've never understood. And again, I, I go back. McMaster is trying to figure out a way now that people who offer differing views can some way be protected. I don't know what that's going to look like when it finally gets written. I hope it's as positive as it sounds on his face. But Lindsay Shepard from Wilfrid Laurier University, go and read her story. Go online. Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y, and Shepard like the shepherd. Um, and you can go find it. And Wilfrid Laurier, go read it. You will be... You've heard her now. You'll be amazed at what happened with this thing. Lindsay, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank you. If you don't think that there's a problem when someone in a grammar class shows a video. Now, there is no doubt that Jordan Peterson is a controversial figure. There's no doubt about that. But if we can't at university even hear someone else's point of view that you may disagree with without shutting that person down, and I've as I say, we've talked about this on the show before, and it's always been examples that are far away or that are theoretical, here is a real life up close example just down the road at Waterloo at Wilfrid Laurier University of showing not a recruitment video for Isis not a recruitment video for anti this or anti that a guy who is controversial yes but according to her it showed both sides it showed him giving his point of view but also answering questions from people who were challenging him so what else can you not show at university what else are you know what else is not allowed that is ruled out that would be deemed Unacceptable. And if this is unacceptable, I got to tell you, there are so many things that apparently, if someone complained about it, that would get you in trouble. I just, this is the opposite. This is the absolute opposite of what should be happening at universities. This is the absolute 180 degree opposite of what should be happening at university. And if you are a university student and you go to a campus, And you hear a point of view that is different from yours. And if you are so offended, and again, we're not talking about someone saying something that is intentionally insanely out there. We're not talking about, I mean, even if it is, let let me back up. Even if someone stood on a soapbox and said, I love Adolf Hitler. Learn how to filter that stuff and to be able to deal with hearing someone else's point of view. You don't have to agree with them. You can think they're 100% wrong. You can think that they are a moron for doing what they're doing. But certainly don't say, I cannot have my virginal ears touched by words that would upset or offend me. That is too much for me. I simply can't deal with such hardship. No, you should be getting challenged. You should be getting offended. You should be getting upset. And there's nothing wrong with that. There is no law in our society, nor should there ever be, that says you are entitled to go through life without ever being offended. There is nothing, there is no promise of that in any law, any constitution, any charter of rights. Nowhere does it say you can live your life free of offense. And yet that's what on campuses, it seems, we're trying to do, to create this utopian society where you could leave at the end of four years and say, I was never offended challenged, upset once. Well, that just becomes whatever amount your tuition is, 50,000 bucks for four years of pablum. If that's what you want, stay home, lock yourself in your basement and only read the websites that you want to read that will never ever upset or offend you. If you want to actually be in the real world, deal with it and shame on the folks at Laurier who would actually take this to the point where she has to sit in front of a panel of three people. Shame on them. Shame on everybody at every campus of every university that has started to do this kind of stuff. It's disgraceful.
0: The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from
1: 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.